is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the U.S. Constitution was created on September 17, 1787. And all week long, we're celebrating and hearing stories about this remarkable document, These Remarkable Times, sponsored by our friends at the Stetson Family Office. Today, we're joined by the head of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. But let's first turn to one of America's greatest historians and storytellers, David McCullough, to set the scene about what our framers achieved in Philadelphia. They're meeting in Philadelphia in secret, in in the same room where the Declaration of Independence was worked out and signed. Many of you, I hope, have been there. You've seen it. It's not a very large room. It's not a vast, impressive gathering place. And, and its importance to our story as a country, to who we are and what we stand for, could not be greater. Imagine these two immensely important documents, both of which are, of course, here, where we are now, were created there. And we're talking to Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center, who is in Philadelphia, not far from Assembly Hall, which is what author David McCullough was just referring to. Talk about what David just said about this very special place. Well, it is such a thrill to be here in the National Constitution Center overlooking Independence Hall. Imagine coming to work every day and seeing the room where it happened, the cradle of the greatest document of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution, as well as the Declaration of Independence. It is such an honor to work at the National Constitution Center, and I hope all of your listeners will come visit us here in Philadelphia and also check us out online. You know, people, I think, Jeffrey, don't quite understand that exceptional nature of freedom and that it was not just rare, but almost unheard of in the 18th century. Talk about freedom. Well, that's absolutely right. Look at the governments of Europe, and there are a group of kings and autocrats and oligarchs and thugs. There's uh, one small experience of democracy in Switzerland, but otherwise, the framers are trying to create the first government based on popular sovereignty. That is the idea that we the people are sovereign, not the king and parliament or the senators or the, or the aristocrats in history. So they have this tremendous theoretical challenge and also practical challenge, and that's what created the miracle in Philadelphia. What problems, Jeffrey, were the founders trying to solve when they came together? They had this governing document called the Articles of Confederation. That wasn't working out too well, was it? It certainly wasn't. The Articles of Confederation required unanimous consent of all the states before anything could be done. And as a result, it was impossible to raise money to support the war. George Washington is at Valley Forge, along with a young soldier called John Marshall, without shoes for the soldiers because the Confederation government couldn't raise taxes. At the same time, the framers are afraid of mobs. In Massachusetts, there's Shays Rebellion, where groups of debtors are forming mobs and refusing to pay their creditors. And therefore, the framers are trying to create a central government strong enough to raise taxes and achieve common purposes like the common defense, but constrained enough to protect liberty. And that was the central challenge of the con- of the convention. And what a duality. And by the way, still the central challenge of the people today, the fights we're having today, Jeffrey, in large measure, some of them are very similar, aren't they? Well, they are. The strains that 
animated the convention resonate powerfully in American democracy today. The framers have been reading about failed democracies in Greece and Rome. They believe that unchecked direct democracies leads to demagogues and the mob. Madison says that all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. So what they're trying to do is to create not a direct democracy, but a representative republic where reason will spread slowly over time. The whole system is designed to slow down the formation of majorities so that reason can prevail. And that explains the separation of powers, checks and balances, and Madison's faith that the extended republic, the fact that America was really big, would make it hard for mobs, uh, which he called factions, to mobilize quickly, and, and that he figured that their passion would dissipate before they had a chance to do mischief. Obviously, these questions are centrally relevant today. Indeed. Let's talk about some of the key influences on the thinking of our founders. David McCullough, in that same speech, said, you are what you read, and I so believe this. What were the founders reading the founders were reading Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke and figures of the Scottish Enlightenment like Francis Hutcheson and Jean-Jacques Burlamaki. And these thinkers believe that we all have certain natural rights that come not from government but from God or nature. And the whole theory of natural rights, Lockean theory, is contained in the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. What's an unalienable right? Well, according to the natural rights thinkers like Locke, we're born in a state of nature with these inherent God-given rights. And when we form governments, we can alienate or surrender to government temporary control over certain rights in order to ensure greater security and safety of the rights we've retained. What's the quintessential unalienable right? The rights of conscience, the right to believe or not to believe according to the dictates of conscience, because our beliefs are the product of reason. And these are men, and they are all men, of the Enlightenment who think we, we can't alienate or surrender our powers of reason because it defines who we are. And then the second unalienable right is the right to, of rebellion, the right to change government whenever it threatens our retained rights rather than protecting them. So this natural rights theory was at the core of the constitutional design. And let's talk about what they were writing, because you had some great writers in that room. Talk about the Federalist Papers, if you can. Well, the Federalist Papers are among the greatest contributions to political philosophy of the 18th century, as well as being a practical defense of the Constitution. They were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay in order to persuade people to ratify the Constitution. Remember, after the Constitution is proposed in Independence Hall on September 17, 1787, it doesn't have the force of law. It has to be ratified by two-thirds of the state conventions in order to speak for we the people. So Madison, Hamilton, and Jay write these remarkable defenses of the Constitution. They're published in the newspaper. We have here at the Constitution Center the first public printing of the Constitution in the Pennsylvania Packet newspaper published two days after the Constitution was proposed. And the Pennsylvania Packet and newspapers like it published the Federalist Papers that people could read. And they would get them on carts or, you know, whatever the 18th century equivalent of newsstands was. And it's just remarkable how willing people were to take the time to absorb these complicated arguments of political theory and to debate them and ultimately to ratify the Constitution. And when we come back, more with Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Jeffrey Rosen, who leads the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. Let's talk about some of the debates and tensions the framers were trying to resolve with the Constitution, starting with big states versus small states. What was going on as the states debated whether they wanted to get on board with this new Constitution? Well, that's one of the largest debates over the ratification of the Constitution. You have big states like Virginia that want representation to be based on population because they would would get all the representatives. You have small states like New Jersey that want to guarantee a certain number of representatives for each state no matter how big it is. And the problem was resolved by Connecticut. Roger Sherman of Connecticut came up with the Connecticut Compromise that based apportionment in the House on population and in the Senate based on two representatives for every state. And that was broadly how it was resolved. But it really is interesting that the question of how big the body should be was the central one that gripped the convention. And the First Amendment originally proposed to the Constitution at the top of the Bill of Rights wasn't the one protecting free speech. It was one that said there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, there'd be 6,000 congresspeople today around the size of the Chinese National Assembly. Uh, It didn't pass, but it just shows how central the concern over how big the apportionment should be was to the conventional debates. Indeed. Let's talk about now the structure of this great document. I want to play you a clip from Justice Scalia. Uh, He gave this talk at the United States Senate. If you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights. Every president for life has a Bill of Rights. (laughs) The Bill of Rights of of the former evil empire, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, was much better than ours. I mean it literally. It was much better. We guarantee freedom of speech and of the press. Big deal. They guaranteed freedom of speech, of the press, of street demonstrations and protests. And anyone who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account. Whoa, that that is wonderful stuff. Of course. Just words on paper. What our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union You think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill, it means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution, has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights, that was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power. Address Scalia's point about this Bill of Rights, because most Americans are going to go straight to the Bill of Rights I think Justice Scalia is absolutely right. Uh, Madison himself said originally that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary or dangerous. Unnecessary because he believed the Constitution itself was a Bill of Rights. By constraining congressional power, it gave the legislature no power to abridge free speech and therefore there was no need to say so. And dangerous because Madison and the framers thought, as people of the Enlightenment, that our rights are so sweeping, since they come from God or nature, that to try to write them down might lead people wrongly to assume if it wasn't written down, it wasn't protected. So that's why the main protections for liberty, as Justice Scalia suggested, were originally structural. By narrowly limiting and enumerating Congress's power— and saying it could do some stuff but not everything. They thought that they would protect liberty by delineating the executive and preventing him from being a king and forcing him to act with Congress rather than through executive orders, for example, which are now controversial among 
presidents of both parties, they thought they'd protect liberty. And by creating a judiciary with limited jurisdiction and powers, they thought that liberty would be protected. So structural guarantees, were, and then and there's more. Uh, they, they wanted to separate power among the three branches so no one branch could speak for the people, and then further divide power between the federal government and the states to ensure that the states could check the federal government. So it was really the genius of the convention was its structural dispersion of power. In Europe, power was concentrated, and that was the most important uh, protection for liberty in the Constitution. And so they were doing those two things we talked about when we started this conversation. They wanted to both have a central government, but yet limit it and constrain it at the very same time. Let's talk about Article One and the structure of our government. The legislative branch, why was this the first branch? The legislative branch, the framers thought, was the first branch. They thought it would be the most dangerous branch. Madison thought that Congress would be an impetuous vortex, sort of inhaling all powers into its domain. And it was the first branch because they believed that it was the legislature that should ultimately make the laws. Uh, they, they didn't want to create a king. It was very important not to have an absolute monarch. And the legislature was the people's branch. And therefore, the people should be uh, the first. Um, but they really wanted to constrain the legislature. So that was the decision to create a popularly elected House and then a Senate which, while representing the small states, would also serve as what George Washington purportedly called the senatorial saucer that would cool the passions of the House, the idea that the Senate would be comprised of wise aristocrats who would uh, deliberate in the common good and would prevent the, the populist House from doing anything too hasty. Uh, and Congress was given much broader powers than the Confederation Congress, and in particular power over taxes, over tariffs over defense. Congress has the power to declare war and not the president, as well as this sweeping clause, as they called it, the power to make all laws necessary and proper to carry out its enumerated powers. And, and Hamilton thought that was a very sweeping power indeed. And Jefferson disagreed, setting up the current debates over the scope of whether Congress's power is limited and, and how it's limited. But that's why Article One is first. And the framers really thought that it would be the most dangerous branch. Indeed. And the House, by the way, everyone goes up for election every two years. The Senate, it's six years. But not only is it every six years, Jeffrey, but it's a rotating six years. Why? Their model is Cincinnatus, who George Washington invoked, the farmer who serves in the Roman uh, Senate and then goes back to work on his farm after his service. And they did not want to have uh, representatives in all the time in order to protect liberty. Yeah, civilian in the end, a government run by civilians, right? Crucially important. Uh, and the military, of course, under civilian power. And George Washington, the former general, always presenting himself in his civilian capacity as a citizen. Indeed. Let's talk about the executive branch. This is Article 2. Talk about generally what the founders had in mind with this article. The president was given very specific powers. And talk about them. He really is. And it's, it's remarkable how sort of short a list it is. Uh, he's given the power to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, known as the, the vesting clause. He's given control over the executive branch, which includes the power to hire and fire executive branch officials. Through custom, George Washington established the power to receive ambassadors and some uh, other powers that are not enumerated. 
Originally, in the first drafts, the president wasn't even given the power over nominations of Supreme Court justices and treaties. That was exclusively in the Senate, but then the president now shares it. The question of how the president should be elected was was controversial in the convention. Uh, James Wilson and other populists wanted direct popular election. Madison wanted election by the legislature, and the solution was the unwieldy electoral college, which, as you suggested earlier, has failed to serve its original function of being wise, uh, you know, uh, Solon's choosing presidents of the highest distinction. And with the rise of political parties, which the framers failed to anticipate, quickly became a rubber stamp for the choice of the parties. But it really is striking how few enumerated powers the president has and how the office was completely transformed really much later around the election of 1912 when Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson insisted that the president was a steward of the people who directly channeled populist will and the constitutionalist William Howard Taft disagreed and took the old Madisonian vision of the office as a constrained chief magistrate. And now, as I suggested, we have presidents of both parties ruling by executive order rather than through Congress, which was the opposite of the framers' intention. So the office, which is now known as the imperial presidency, has been transformed in ways that the framers did not anticipate. Indeed. And let's talk last about the judiciary, or not last, but Article 3. Talk about this branch And did the founders think it would be the powerful branch it is today? I mean, we talk about this all the time. Every time we talk about the nomination of a Supreme Court justice, it's big, big news. Is that what the founders intended? It is not. We know this confidently because our hero, the rap star of the moment, Alexander Hamilton, said in Federalist 78 that the judiciary would be the least dangerous branch because it had neither purse nor sword. In other words, it couldn't force people to obey its orders and relied on popular persuasion. Federalist 78 does established that the framers expected that courts could strike down unconstitutional laws. That was the power recognized in Marbury versus Madison. When there's a conflict between the will of the people represented by the Constitution and the will of the legislature represented by ordinary laws, judges should prefer the principle to the agent. In other words, the Constitution has more status as supreme law than that of an ordinary act of the people's fallible representatives. But the court was by no means exercising that power much. It struck down only two federal laws in the first 75 years of its existence, Marbury versus Madison uh, in the early 19th century, and then the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857. By contrast, about 75 laws in the next 75 years and 125 laws or more since 1934. More with Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Center and CEO, too, here on Our American Stories. continue our conversation with the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, Jeffrey Rosen. And all week long, we're celebrating the Constitution. On September 17, 1787, our founders signed that document all week long. All of this work is brought to us by the great people at the Stetson family office. Jeffrey, let's talk about the Bill of Rights. How did they come to be? 
Well, at the Constitutional Convention, Madison and other Federalists insisted, hey, there's no need for a Bill of Rights because you don't have to worry. The Congress itself is constrained. The Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights. But the anti-Federalists disagreed. And in particular, three anti-Federalists, that is people opposed to strong federal power, refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't contain a Bill of Rights. And at the National Constitution Center, we have this amazing room called Signers Hall with life-size statues of all the framers. And in the back of the room are the three anti-federalists, George Mason of Virginia, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. Now you can pedantically pronounce it gerrymandering rather than gerrymandering because it was named after him because he was the Massachusetts politician who drew voting districts. So they snaked around like salamanders in order to protect incumbents. So those three guys said, no, we're not going to sign. And animated by their noble protest, a bunch of the state ratifying conventions said, yes, we will ratify the Constitution on the condition that you adopt subsequent amendments of Bill of Rights. So Madison, faced with this huge pressure from the grassroots, changed his mind about a Bill of Rights. It's one of the great evolutions in constitutional history. He cut and pasted the amendments from the state constitution and bills of rights that were adapted between 1776 and the 1780s. Madison first had 19 amendments proposed. They were whittled down to 12 that were actually sent down to the states. And out of those, 10 were adopted. And those are known today as the Bill of Rights. Let's talk about the people now, because the people are important. You know, McCullough in that same speech, Jeffrey, had said nothing had to happen the way it happened, A, and B, that those people weren't living in the past. They didn't know what was going to happen. They all journeyed down to this place in Philadelphia. And I think most people agree without this one man who sat in the middle of that beautiful hall. His name was George Washington. Could this have happened without George Washington? No, it could not have. He had greater prestige than anyone else in the new republic. And if he hadn't blessed the enterprise, then no one else would have showed up. He didn't know what was going to happen. And he really struggled over the question of whether or not to lend his incredible prestige to an enterprise that turned out to be illegal under the terms of the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation said that any amendments had to be unanimously adopted But the Constitutional Convention pretty quickly decided that they would adopt uh, changes based on less than unanimity, something more like two-thirds. So for Washington to go there after having won the Revolutionary War and developed all that goodwill was an act of faith on his part, and it was that endorsement that made the Constitution possible. Let's talk about the four or five most important people in your estimation, Jeffrey, and in the National Constitution Center's estimation, who are the critical thinkers? And what state did they come from? It looks like, for some reason, Virginia and Massachusetts had tremendous input in this endeavor. They really did. And Virginia takes preeminence uh, because of the participation of James Madison, who's known as the father of the Constitution because he was one of its principal draftspeople, and it was Madison whose central idea it was that we should have a representative republic rather than a direct democracy that would slow down the formation of popular majorities so that reason could prevail. Other important figures, of course, we've got to mention the guy who threw away his shot, Alexander Hamilton, uh, who everyone loves from the musical. He's from New York. He is a champion of broad national power and of an extraordinarily strong executive and Senate. In fact, Hamilton favors an executive for life, a kind of elected king. 
which makes him an unlikely populist hero. He was no populist, but he did favor a strong national government in order to create a national bank and a thriving national economy. His great antagonist, Thomas Jefferson, wasn't there. He was in Paris. And uh, John Adams from Massachusetts, the other very important influence on constitutional thinking, was in London. So two big framers were not there. Among those who were, I'd like to give a shout out to an underappreciated genius of the Constitution, James Wilson from Pennsylvania. It was James Wilson who came up with the idea that we, the people of the United States as a whole, are sovereign rather than we, the people of each individual state or the king in parliament or the state governments themselves. That was the radical innovation of American political philosophy that allowed Lincoln, when he resisted the right of the South to secede, to say, since we, the people of the United States as a whole, created the union, we, the people of the United States as a whole, would have to consent to its alteration. And that's why the language of the preamble of the Constitution was changed from its original draft, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Providence Plantation, and so forth, into we the people of the United States. That was all because of the great genius of James Wilson. And then one final uh, Pennsylvania hero, I mean, well, two, actually, we've got to mention Governor Morris, who was the head of the Committee of Style, uh, which came up with a lot of the final language. And then Benjamin Franklin, who didn't say much during the convention, but who had great authority. And at the end, after the Constitution was ratified, he was famously asked, what have you created, Dr. Franklin? And he said, a republic if you can keep it. And that it's important to parse what that means, a republic, not a direct democracy. In other words, a, a government where representatives would deliberate in the name of the people. And if you can keep it, that means we, the people, have an obligation to continue to educate ourselves about the Constitution so we can elect representatives who will protect liberty in our name. Indeed. We don't have the oldest country, but we have the oldest constitution. It's quite a miracle that these guys, their thinking in the 18th century was just so dead on and spot on as it relates to the issues of millennia. It's amazing. A constitution of 4,000 some odd words shorter than the Facebook privacy policy and that has endured so dramatically. The framers themselves, I think, would have been surprised by its endurance. Uh, Jefferson thought that you needed a constitutional convention every 10 years so that uh, people could rethink the basic structure of government. Madison completely disagreed. He thought it was a miracle, basically just wild luck, that the convention made of fallible human beings had produced this remarkable document the first time, and he didn't want to risk having another convention because he thought it could go haywire the next time. So there's something, I think it, you have to attribute it, obviously, to the genius of the framers, but also to the power of their ideas, the fact that they were channeling that natural rights thinking and that they were creatures in the Enlightenment, and they were so devoted above all to the power of reason, combining a devotion to popular sovereignty and majority rule with an insistence that that majority rule be reasonable rather than impetuous. That was the great genius. And then writing it down, the words themselves constrain and the words themselves endure, was an act of genius that has proved to create the most enduring constitution in history. Let's talk about property rights, if we could. There's that patent idea right there in Article 1. And for my money, I think what's so remarkable about this country is that not only is our property property protected, but our ideas, what's in our head is protected, And I think this is what makes America the leader in the arts, in ideas, in innovation. Talk about that. 
Yes, the the intellectual property clause was influenced by Jefferson, who believed that it's impossible to copyright ideas themselves because it's like a flame of a candle. I don't steal the flame from you if I pass it along, kindling a fellow idea, but you can certainly patent the means of expression because that encourages creativity, which was the core uh, goal of the freedom of conscience. And property is really important because Madison says the protection of property is the primary object of government. Remember, he's really haunted by these debtor mobs in Massachusetts that he believes are threatening private property. But it is not a protection for the rich over the poor. Madison is very much insistent on equality of conditions. He's looking forward to the year 1930 and afraid that there might be vast income inequality that would make it hard for small farmers and small business people to uh, counter large corporations. But the whole Constitution is suffused with protection for property, and indeed they thought that was the main point of the Constitution. And beautifully put, Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, all week long celebrating the Constitution here on Our American Stories, the biggest story of them all, the story of our nation's founding, continues after these messages. with his final segment of an hour with Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. And storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks. And this is Constitution Week here. We're celebrating it thanks to our sponsors at the Stetson Family Office. Jeffrey, since the Constitution's creation in 1787, there have been only 27 amendments. Talk about some of the big ones, particularly in the context of our nation's original sin, slavery. The convention refused to constitutionalize slavery or not. Uh, Madison centrally said, as Sean Wilentz argues in a brilliant new book, that the question of whether there should be property in men is one that the Constitution should not take a position on, leaving it up to Congress and ultimately to war to resolve the status of enslaved people. And after the Civil War, Lincoln, resurrecting uh, Jefferson's promise in the Declaration at Gettysburg, promises a new birth of freedom. And the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution passed after the Civil War abolish slavery, guarantee equal protection of the law to all persons, uh, equal privileges or immunities to all citizens, and prohibit states as well as the federal government from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, ultimately applying the guarantees of the Bill of Rights against the states. And finally, the 15th Amendment gives African Americans the right to vote. So the post-Civil War amendments are a central part of our constitutional design and, as you suggested, remedied uh, the original sin and uh, are part of uh, a document that is increasingly inclusive, embracing the rights of African Americans, women in the 19th Amendment, uh, young people who are given uh, the right to vote, as well as increasingly expansive rights for non-citizens. Indeed. And what the National Constitution Center does, as I alluded to earlier, Jeffrey, is when folks go in, they're going to see opinions, uh, but opinions by the best and brightest on, let us just say, both sides. Some people might think there are more than two sides, but 
you, you do your best to go to the best sources from both sides. Talk about how you chose the organizations you chose and talk a little bit about these two sides. And I, I almost want to say one's sort of the living constitution, one's originalism. I think that may be too simplified, but for, for brevity's sake, describe the decisions and discussions you had at the National Constitution Center when, when doing all this work. Well, the core of our educational efforts that I would love your listeners to check out is called the Interactive Constitution. It's online at constitutioncenter.org, and it's also in the App Store at Interactive Constitution. And it's co-sponsored by the Federalist Society, which is the leading conservative and libertarian lawyers organization, and the American Constitution Society, the leading progressive organization. And we asked those two groups to nominate scholars to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. So it's the most amazing and exciting educational tool. You can click on any amendment. Let's take the most controversial one, the Second Amendment. And you can find scholars nominated by both sides, Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, with a thousand words about what they agree the Second Amendment means and then separate statements about what they disagree. So both Winkler and Lund agreed that the Second Amendment was designed to prohibit the federal government from disarming citizens so they could defend themselves against federal tyranny but they disagree about whether assault weapons bans are constitutional or not. So by asking liberals and conservatives to explore areas of agreement and disagreement, the common statement is like a unanimous Supreme Court opinion. You can be totally confident that every word in that statement is agreed to by scholars on both sides, and then we identify the areas of disagreement. And that's really what the Constitution was set up to do. Uh, Justice Holmes said the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And by asking citizens to set aside their political views and instead ask uh, not what the government should do, but what the Constitution allows government to do, in other words, focus on the constitutional, not political questions, bring the leading voices together on all sides and explore areas of agreement and disagreement. We're trying to model the civil discourse that the framers thought was necessary, but most importantly, just to allow citizens to educate themselves about the Constitution. George Washington says that unless citizens are educated in the science of government, the whole system will collapse. And Jefferson says democracy cannot survive ignorant and free. So that is why so urgently important for all of your listeners to go to the interactive constitution, pick provisions they don't know about, respectfully entertain the arguments on both sides, be open to the possibility of changing your mind after confronting uh, an argument on a different side, and most important, be ready to embrace a constitutional conclusion that might clash with your political views. In other words, you might think gun control is a great idea, but the Second Amendment prohibits it, or it's a terrible idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And the same question can be asked for any constitutional provision, and that's what it means to engage in the privilege of constitutional debate. And let's get to that point of the agreement. You know, today, folks hear about all the 5-4 decisions in the, at the Supreme Court but what I loved about that and still love about that interactive constitution is that point of agreement. And Americans agree about many more things than they know, but no one ever asks them to sit down and find out what they agree on. We instantly go to disagreement. Talk about those court cases, because there are so many of them, Jeffrey, that are nine nothing. Something like up to 80% of all Supreme Court decisions are nine to nothing. So there's a huge unanimity in the Supreme Court. Now, it's true that the really contested constitutional cases sometimes divide, but it's very important, especially in these incredibly polarized times, that listeners not assume 
that it's just always five Republicans against four Democrats. The current Chief Justice John Roberts has made it a premium. He's made it a central mission of his chief justiceship to try to persuade his colleagues to converge around multipartisan, often unanimous decisions. We have examples of those in cases involving digital privacy where the court nine to zero has said that the government can't search you when you're arrested and seize your cell phone because that's like the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution. We also have unexpected alliances that unite liberal and conservative justices of similar judicial philosophy, like that interesting internet tax case where there were a group of uh, five liberals and conservatives who thought precedent was really important and four liberals and conservatives who thought it was less important. So that's why it's so important to educate yourselves about the constitutional methodologies. We've been talking about originalism, living constitutionalism. There's also textualism, pragmatism, uh, an emphasis on the structural protections of the Constitution, and also natural rights, which we've been talking about. All of these are embraced by justices of different political persuasions and can lead in different directions. And once you've mastered those, then you'll come to think of the courts not in purely political terms, but ultimately as constitutional bodies. Indeed. One of the things we're going to press for here on this show each and every year is that National Constitution Day be a day in which all public schools do something really radical. They talk about and teach the Constitution for a day, Jeffrey, and we are hoping that your Constitution Center is the one credible source that folks can go to, that a superintendent of schools can go to and say, hey, look, these guys have got it all figured out. They're not picking a team. Talk about what you're doing about that primal goal of getting our public schools particularly to spend more time on the Revolutionary War, but more importantly, on this remarkable document called our Constitution. Well, I'm really thrilled that the interactive Constitution we've been talked about is about to be ramped up so it's even more accessible to students of all backgrounds and ages. We are working to create videos with Supreme Court Justices Elena Kagan and Neil Gorsuch about the First Amendment, and we're creating a two-week course on the First Amendment that the College Board, which runs the advanced placement courses, will require for all students who take AP courses, not just AP History and Government, but Italian and Biology, because we in the College Board think it's so important for everyone to know these basic principles. But it's not enough to make this great tool available just to AP kids. We must bring it to students across America in public schools, in charter schools, home schools, underserved communities everywhere. And the next version of the online interactive constitution will include videos, lessons plans, links to Supreme Court cases, all made very accessible so that any student and any citizen can learn about the essence of the Constitution in a balanced, trusted way that brings leading liberal and conservative voices together. So we're so excited about this. The Interactive Constitution has gotten 18 million hits since it launched just three years ago, and our goal really is to bring it to every student in America. It is a beautiful tool. It's a fun tool, too, Jeffrey, and this is fun. I think I want to leave with that. My dad was a history teacher. We took Civil War battlefield tours together. This show has done a 30-part series on Lewis and Clark. What a story it is, their story. And I think the hard thing for people to do is to know that this was an exciting time. Uh, It's not just a bunch of facts and dates. This is about our lives, Jeffrey. There's nothing more fun and elevating and satisfying than learning about history. These are human stories. They're all about people. They're about people like Alexander Hamilton, whose whose story from the scrappy immigrant to the most powerful head of the bank to this incredible duel has just seized America. Stories like uh, John 
Marshall, the Supreme Court justice, who was so convivial, the way he persuaded his fellow justices to be unanimous is by having them all drink Madeira together, and they would all get buzzed, and all the cases were unanimous. And stories like the incredible John Adams, who has this uh, vision of preventing the dangers of Greece and Rome and uh, seethes uh, with a rivalry with his uh, former friend, Alexander Hamilton, who he believes has uh, gone over to the dark side. So it's absolutely not uh, – I'm just – I'm a law professor uh, at GW Law School, and here at the National Constitution Center, I feel like I've got the best job in the world because I get to learn something incredibly fun and interesting every day, and there is so much to learn, and it would be so exciting for all your listeners to just get inflamed with the joy of learning history and to do as much of it as possible. And that was Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Go to their website. And the interactive constitution is terrific. Go to hillsdale.edu. Their courses are great. The constitution courses are too. And of course, the Stetson Family Office sponsored all of this stuff. All of the content for National Constitution Week was not possible without them. Their materials are terrific too. Essentials in Education. Go to constitutioncurriculum.org. That's constitutioncurriculum.org. The American Story, the Story of the Constitution here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by The Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know, Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse. Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person. Uh, I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. The original version was from a man's point of view. What you want, honey, you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for a respect when I After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, 
piano by the window, watching the cars go by. And uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliche. The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props in modern hip-hop terminology. That line there, TCB. It's an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words for music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. TCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love cry. This now song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <laughs> This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still going to do it anyway. <laughs> Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists and gospel blues artists. But Otis had this song, Respect, which was his expression of hard-working then Southern black man <clears throat> coming home after a week at work and saying, we're going to dance, and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that, and they didn't mind those pin curls and telling me you don't feel well. And this. We're going to dance, and talk. we're going to party, give me my dude, give me my respect. That was, that was the significance of Otis' song. And it was a male macho, work with me, Annie, let's dance tonight song, okay? Um... Three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years, and where all of a sudden, Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib black women's lib song where here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the world. No, don't hit me no more. Just come on. Give me my propers when I get home. R-E-S-P. And she tears the pants off the song. It was the same song. It was a hit both times. It just depended which world you were living in, which one you liked. But damn, it was a hot song. While Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, 
Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Stories. To hear more, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. My goodness gracious, let me tell you the news My head's been wet with the midnight dew I've been down on bended knee Talking to the man from Galilee He spoke to me with a voice so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels sweet He called my name and my heart stood still When he said, John, go do my will Go tell that long-tongued liar Go and tell that midnight rider Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter Tell him that God's gonna cut him down Tell him that God's gonna cut him down This is Our American Stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a, sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best record you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. 
Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it. For all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive, multi-million dollar enterprise, in his dorm room at NYU. And he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica, and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music, and I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be really um, interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with it. In the 80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic. Like in the 70s, some of the 80s, when the magic of the music was gone. And I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do. And I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like, he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room, just with a guitar and talking about songs. Back about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Pretty little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing around the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point.
was great. The first album we made was mostly solo acoustic. And then it came time to do the next one, and you had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Here's Tom Petty. I never pick cotton. Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live. Daddy died young, working in a coal mine. John would start to sing, and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw and at times it wasn't musical but it was so real and so heartfelt that it it almost brought me to tears but then rick would really try to push johnny to do things that he would never think of doing i played johnny cash the soundgarden song rusty cage which is a heavy metal song with chris cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream Johnny listened to it and just shook his head and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. And bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement. And there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with a hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my... Going to break my rusty cage. It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean... Rick was like an angel who came in and said, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe vulnerable and he allowed me to be myself completely this is beautiful and that is that is really what record producers do it's what great directors do in the end and really that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do johnny cash's story rick rubin's story actually it's a love story if you read a man called cash you won't believe it it is a love story because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career and a whole new generation of mtv viewers Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And at the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they were just serving Johnny, too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around, 
hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. The virgins are all trimming their wigs. The whirlwind is in the thorn tree. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell a lot of stories about the men and women in our military on this show and we tell a lot of stories about Americans of faith. And today we have a story about a remarkable man who lived, served, and died at the intersection of these two great communities. This is the story of a Catholic priest, a U.S. Navy chaplain, one who earned our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole other world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang, with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, was on a typical search-and-destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really, the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadano was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go, and they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men there are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post. We're being overrun. We're being overrun. We can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. 
He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. He knew where the sacraments were needed. It wasn't on the safety side of the hill. And in a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured, at least a little. And Father Capadano was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deployed tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one, he had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an Orthodox man, again dying, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man to care for him in his last hours of life and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corpsman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton, who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. 
For his gallantry, Father Capadano earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served with in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize from our story about him. You'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. The father of Vincent R. Capadano, his service to his country, to his fellow soldiers, and most of all, to his Lord. His story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. 
My name is Liz Williams and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Minns defined cuisine and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes. Everyone feels they know about and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine. And people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them. But I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever. And people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same. And it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group, Italian, Chinese, Indian, French, each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here, rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together, is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant, and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked. And then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you had the Spanish who came later, but now you've got the settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food. Plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet they're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have 
here in Louisiana, you had Germans, they were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prison. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtor's prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage making traditions. New Orleans is an old city. And by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana Territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans. And of course, they're bringing pasta. The interesting thing is, of course, tomatoes were from uh, the Americas. The tomato went back with Columbus was adopted by Southern Italy, totally transformed the cuisine of Southern Italy, and then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes, so we weren't canning tomatoes wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy, and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, things like that, which is a southern thing is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans, and now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys, and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city, and so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. 
So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is gonna tell you a restaurant. Everyone is gonna say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking, it's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home, and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now, you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best pogoi is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter. Everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. That is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. And you listen to people talk about food on the bus, and you listen to people talk about food everywhere, and people want to know, you know, do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo, or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside? All the little nuances of it. It's like everybody wants to know. And nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know. Everybody knows. And great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my brides, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Orleans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories.